What's wonderful to be is, um, am I on? Am I good here? All right, thank you. Um, I just want to thank everybody at Mockingbird um, for uh, having me out, and thank you also, um, Everett and everybody at Christ Church Tulsa, Bishop Reed, for welcoming me into the Diocese of Oklahoma. Um, it's just an honor to be with you today um, and to celebrate God's grace with you. Um, I want to open with with a prayer. I, I said as much of this as I could remember earlier in, in, um, in our devotional time. This is actually the, the one of the prayers for Good Friday and also for ordinations. And I think that coincidence is important. So you pray with me. O oh God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church. That wonderful and sacred mystery, by the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which were cast down are being raised up, and things which had grown old are being made new, and that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made. Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. I'd like to begin this morning with the first two questions of the Heidelberg Catechism. Question one, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I'm not my own but belong body and soul in life and death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation because I belong to him. Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Two, what must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Answer, three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free, set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. So these two questions taken together are going to shape what follows. So you ready for the ride? Yeah, 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 all right, all right, let's go. So there's three parts to this. The first is uh, the terror of belonging to ourselves. Recently, I saw a tweet that said something like, never trust anyone who says you don't belong to yourself. And while I'm aware of the ways that the rhetoric like, you belong to me, when said by one human to another, can lead us to some profoundly death-dealing places, I also thought, how profoundly sad. How profoundly painful to be consigned to be the principal player and director of your own story because it's bound to go wrong and because it's lonely. The kind of lonely that walks into a business traveler's hotel 
drops a well-used wheelie bag upstairs and heads for the bar through an endless palette of beige. The kind of lonely, and this very thing happened to me in another life, the kind of lonely that walks outside the office at the end of the day, looks up at a Virginia sky filled with F-15s and says, oh my God, is this how the rest of my life is going to be? How terrifying to be my own and not to be God's. My stomach drops even now at the idea that I am responsible for making everything come out all right in my own life and in the world. People in 12-step programs know this all too well. In chapter 5 of the big book of AA, we read the first requirement is that we be convinced that any life run on self-will will hardly be a success. On that basis, we're almost always in collision with something or somebody, even though our motives are good. Most people try to live by self-propulsion. Each person is an actor who wants to run the whole show, is forever trying to arrange the lights, the ballet, the scenery, and the rest of the players in his own way. If his arrangements would only stay put, if only people would do as he wished, the show would be great. Everybody, including himself, would be pleased. The pathway to life leads through rejecting this way of being in the world, through turning our lives and ourselves over to the care of God. And yet this is impossible without God's help. One person who doesn't understand this is the character Peter Isherwell in the recent Netflix satire, Don't Look Up. Now, I am about to spoil the whole movie, <laughs> but I'm not going to apologize for it, and you should watch it anyway. Isherwell is the archetype of the tech billionaire whose mega corporation, Bash Industries, creates a horrifying smartphone social networking system that knows more about you than you do. Well, not too far off there. But he does it, he says, because I wanted to have a friend. And it's true that so much of our current technological infrastructure is either the product of loneliness or promises a cure for it. The premise of the movie, of course, is that a giant asteroid is about to crash into the Earth, resulting in the immediate extinction of everything. Two obscure astronomers try to get the government to pay attention, and they almost do, up to the point when it's discovered that the asteroid is full of very valuable minerals, billions and billions and billions of dollars worth, will enter Bash Industries, and it's Elon Musk-like plan to launch its own spacecraft, mine the asteroid, and split it up into manageable pieces, which would then belong to Bash Industries. Suffice to say that the plan doesn't work, and the world is destroyed. But in the meantime, Isherwell and a few hand-selected members of the 0.01% escape Earth on their specially built spacecraft, cryogenically frozen until they can colonize another planet. 
as they land many, many years later, it seems that Isherwell has, in fact, saved himself, except that as he and his companions are walking around in their new Eden, naked as Adam and Eve before the fall, they're surrounded by a crew of colorful but vicious alien dinosaurs who begin eating them. <laughs> I liked that scene. <laughs> Meanwhile, back on Earth, the asteroid is coming. The astronomers gather with their family and friends for a last supper. At the end of the world, they decide to do something profoundly, utterly human. Share a meal with each other and love each other to the end. And at the end, something happened in this movie that I never expected, and honestly, it caught me up short. A young man named Yule, the shoplifter, skateboarder, dropout boyfriend of the younger astronomer, leads the group in prayer. And it's one of the best and most unironic uses of Christian prayer in a movie that I've seen in a long time. He says this, Dearest Father and Almighty Creator, we ask for your grace tonight, despite our pride, your forgiveness despite our doubt. Most of all, Lord, we ask for your love to soothe us through these dark times. May we face whatever is to come with courage and open hearts of acceptance. Yule, this most unlikely intercessor, knows that the peace of God, the knowledge of belonging to God, is inseparable from knowing ourselves as sinners in need of forgiveness who cannot help ourselves. Otherwise, the whole thing collapses into a weak form of self-affirmation that cannot rise to the occasion of the end of the world or of the end of any of us in this mortal coil. The seriousness of the human condition requires seriousness and realism about the entire human condition. I am a beloved child of God, and you are too. Yes, it's true. But I am a beloved child of God. I belong to God because I have been redeemed by God because I owe a debt that I can never, ever pay to the one who has done what I cannot do for myself, the one who in the cross has reconciled us with God. Two, the terror of saving ourselves. At the same time, as humans, we recoil from the idea that we cannot save ourselves and especially that we cannot save ourselves by means of human progress. I wrote a book about that. It's $20 out there, and if you hate it, you haven't lost that much money. <laughs> so, so try it out. In Karl Barth's Church Dogmatics, in what he calls the doctrine of reconciliation, which is really his doctrine of the atonement, the root of human sin is the pride that rejects our need for God's saving work in our lives. 
at the heart of the serpent's temptation to be like God in Genesis is the temptation to belong to ourselves, to be an autonomous monad sailing through our lives in an endless project of self-help, self-salvation, and self-mastery. Bart turns from Christology to anthropology as he describes the sinfulness of pride as it's revealed by the person and work of Jesus Christ, kind of by reflection. The rhetoric of paragraph 60, which is called the pride of man, reflects the post-war context in which it was written with the German version appearing in 1953 and the English translation in 1956. The tumultuous years between the publication of volumes one and four had seen Europe become the ground of Cold War confrontation as the United States emerged as a military and economic superpower. The idealized Aryan version of the Ubermensch who served as Bart's primary target in the early volume of the church dogmatics has been replaced by a representation of sinful humanity that reflects a critique of individual self-sufficiency and collective progress, a very American notion. Or it opens by defining sin in terms of the disobedience that comes from unbelief and the man of disobedience as the one who only wants to exalt himself and to be as God, what he calls sicut deus, to pass his limits as a creature. And look, I'm quoting from Bart, and he's not gender inclusive anywhere. Um, sorry. Um, but for man, in all of these things, I hope that you can hear human being. That's what he means. So anyway, to be as God and pass his limits as a creature, and in doing so, he places himself in a self-contradiction that can result only in his destruction. The one who tries to put themselves in the place of God in self-sufficient independence makes two profound errors, one about who we are and one about who God is. The first assumes that the highest form of human existence is self-sufficient, centered, atomized individualism. Bart writes, the error of man concerning himself, his self-alienation, is that he thinks he can love and choose and will and discern and maintain and exalt himself in his being, in himself, his selfhood, and that in so doing, he will be truly man, truly human. Neither as an individual nor in society was he created to be placed alone to be self-controlling and self-sufficient, to be self-centered, to rotate around himself. And the second error imagines that God is the same way, in the way that humans believe that we would be if we were God. Because God isn't like that. Bart writes that the error of man concerning God is that the God he wants to be like is obviously only a self-sufficient, self-affirming, self-desiring supreme being, self-centered and rotating about himself. Such a being is not God. 
God is for himself, but he is not only for himself. He is in a supreme selfhood, but not a self-contained selfhood. Not in a mere divinity which is presented to man. God is a say and for say and pro say and, 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 and for himself. That's important. But as the love which is grounded in itself from all eternity. Because he is the triune God who from the first has loved us as the Father in the Son and turned to us by the Holy Spirit, he is God for us, pro nobis. Here Bar challenges any attempt to assume a God's eye view beyond human limitations. The cross is the unavoidable ground of God's confrontation with what he calls the titanic man who tries to be his own helper and the subject of his own redemptive history. The story of humanity is a great and fantastic attempt to help ourselves. It's one of ongoing dissatisfaction and restless acquisitiveness. Again, Bart writes, throughout his life, he rushes and grasps at this thing and that thing striving and fighting in a dissatisfaction and longing which cannot be explained by the fact that this thing or that thing is useful and necessary and noble and satisfying. In this longing and dissatisfaction, he can never be satisfied with the attainable once he's attained it, but he must immediately demand and reach out after something more and different. And while the individual titanic man strives to find an illusory salvation which he can prepare and make for himself, titanism en masse relies as well on illusory narratives of human progress and improvement. And I quote, what a misunderstanding when we think it is all a matter of what we value and seek as the progress necessary and possible to us, of our inventions and discoveries, of the establishment of our pious and impious philosophies and ethical or unethical principles, of our wars and treaties and new wars, of the movements in which we think we are caught up, of the reactions which they provoke to the things and ideas and persons which are from time to time in the foreground, the extension of our knowledge, the improvement of our techniques, the deepening of our understanding, and the corresponding dissemination of instruction, love and hate, power and possession and desire, the sway of this or that individual or people or position in itself and as such. And yet despite these markers of progress, ostensible markers of progress, humanity remains strikingly the same in spite of all the changes in costume and century and scenery throughout the centuries. Despite every human attempt to supplant, ignore, or avoid God, the word still brings in grace and of grace, in loving freedom, alienated humanity back to a true knowledge of what God is in truth. Three, the terror of saving ourselves, um, of saving the church ourselves. 
Bishop Reed, you might want to. Um. <laughs> Recently, my denomination <clears throat> launched a program calling us to be a church that looks and acts like Jesus. And it goes something like this. A church that looks and acts like Jesus is one that, among other things, is centered on Jesus Christ, practices the self-giving, selfless way of the cross, and unites around the practice of a rule of life in small gathered communities. There's more, but these are the first three bullet points. And this is a challenge that asks us, as a, as a church, to seek deeper formation for its mission. And, you know, I think it's meet and right always and everywhere that the church calls itself again and again to a Christ-centered life. Fine. Great. But I'd like to suggest that as we aspire to these laudable goals, we need to take a step back first lest we fall into a kind of ecclesial titanism. When mainline Christians talk about the mission of the church, I usually see a lot of doing our doing. I often see language about Jesus' teachings, example, and life, but you and I both know that this is a woefully incomplete picture of why Jesus Christ should be the center of our church and our lives. Far too often, there exists a gap between how we talk about Jesus Christ in our liturgy and how we talk about Jesus in public, even among ourselves. There exists a gap between how and how often we talk about our actions and how and how often we talk about God's actions. Now, admittedly, it's easier to talk about love in general terms than to bring up alarming topics like sin, death, and resurrection. But in our prayer book, we find these awkward matters set out clearly. In the prayer book, we find the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We find our gratitude for the redemption of the world by our Lord Jesus Christ, for the means of grace and for the hope of glory. And then and only then can we pray in grateful response to what God has done, that we might give up ourselves to God's service by walking in holiness and righteousness all the days of our life. Where do we start from as we pray to be formed into Christ-centered and cross-shaped people for the mission of the church and the world? I'd like to suggest that we have to start from God's action towards us and for us in Christ, to look at who Jesus is and what Jesus has done that we quite specifically cannot do or be. You know, we like to think of ourselves as welcoming people in my tradition. I mean, it's on all our little signs, right? The Episcopal Church welcomes you. Great. Again, great. It's true. But I think sometimes we labor under the misapprehension that if we just welcome people hard enough, we're going to save the church. <laughs> They're just going to come flocking in because of the quality of our welcome, because we're really nice. If we can just be like Jesus enough, we can be our own ecclesial savior. So let me return to my 12-step example from the start of this talk. 
I often hear the adage that the AA meetings that happen in our church buildings, and we have many at Trinity, do church better than we do, and oftentimes I've heard that framed in terms of welcome. And yet everyone who walks through the doors is welcomed and connected to the group and given a role from setting out chairs to making coffee. But there's more than welcome going on here. Twelve-step groups aren't about people whose life is going pretty well, reaching a hand out, which is really a hand down, to include those who don't have what we do. It's about people gathering around the shared recognition that our lives are completely unmanageable without God, and that people who have turned their lives and their wills over to the care of God are always in the process of repeating the steps of surrender, self-examination, repentance, and making amends. It's about people gathering around a shared honesty about our weakness, and yes, about our sin, and saying to each other, yeah, me too. Me too. You don't just work the steps once and check, done. You're always working a step. There's always a return to the beginning. This is precisely what Robert Jensen argued in a little essay called The Return to Baptism. Here Jensen is drawing on Luther, specifically on the large catechism, where he writes, The act of ceremony of baptism consists in being dipped into the water, which covers us completely and being drawn out again. These two parts being dipped under the water and emerging from it point to the power and effect of baptism, which is nothing else than the slaying of the old Adam and the resurrection of the new creature, both of which must continue in us our whole life. And while there's an absolute once and for all aspect to this sacramental act, and we're very emphatic about that in the Episcopal Church, the Christian life after baptism doesn't exist on an upward trajectory where we never again have to return to these questions. Continuing in the large catechism, Luther writes that a Christian life is nothing else than a daily baptism begun once and continuing ever after. For me, we must keep at it without ceasing, always purging whatever pertains to the old Adam so that whatever belongs to the new creature may come forth. Commenting on this theme and Luther, Jensen reminds us that what we do between baptism and the kingdom is not to march forward from baptism into something else, but rather again and again and again to return to baptism, indeed to creep back into it. Once it's been said, it's clear that this is the only answer that Christianity can give about the character of the Christian life. Well, specifically, how do we return to baptism? The answer is simple, but wrenching, in Jensen's words, give up your past life again to the judgment of God, as you did when you first gave up yourself to the waters. We're in the pattern of the sacraments, we apprehend again the death of the old and the birth of the new. You know, these days, uh, again, in, in my 
denomination, we hear a lot about death and resurrection in terms of institutions where it stands as code for the closure of the church or a failure of a program or the, even the absolutely laudable goal of getting rid of our institutional prejudices. And I'm 100% behind that. But I have to admit that I find this language really unhelpful. First, because it risks collapsing the absolute reality of the death and resurrection of Christ into which we were baptized into a metaphor for present experience. And second, because it diverts our attention from the one thing we would most like to avoid. It averts our eyes from our own sin, and by this I mean our own sin personally, from which we personally need repentance and healing. It can too quickly turn our attention from our need for a savior into programmatic stuff that's much easier to talk about. And let me be clear, we can bring our identity as regenerate sinners into our programmatic imagination, but we cannot begin there. Either we begin from the objective reality of what has happened on the cross and at the empty tomb and what that means for the old human and the new creation within ourselves, or we risk falling into natural religion, therapeutic moralism, externally generated political agendas, and works righteousness. To return again and again to matters of sin and repentance, death and resurrection, is also to return again and again to what makes holiness possible, to what makes a sanctified life possible, to what makes the mission of the church possible. And when I am lifted up, Jesus says, I will draw all people to myself. This passage of scripture, one of my very favorite, is true in multiple senses. It's true as Jesus is lifted up on the cross, and it's true as he ascends to the right hand of the Father. This double movement means that we cannot separate justification and sanctification. To be a sinner saved by grace alone is also to be swept up in the life of God by participation in Christ The cross as the act of God for us stands at the center of all we do as the church. It is, as Bart writes, the place for a full stop, the event without which everything else will be left hanging in the void as an anthropological or psychological or sociological myth that sooner or later will break and fall to the ground. Without that objective act of God for us, without the reality of an objective atonement for our salvation, without the reality of the resurrection, all that we do and all that we say melts into the air. There is no baptismal identity without this. There is no formation without this. There's no mission without this. If we want to talk about being a church that looks like Jesus, then I want to argue that we have to start with the work that makes this possible at all, the one death and resurrection into which we are baptized, with one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We have to begin with our eyes firmly fixed on the one whose death is the death of death, 
We have to begin with the resurrection of the one who has led captivity captive. And we have to start there again and again and again. It really is that easy. It really is that hard. But as a friend of mine once said, for mortals, it is impossible. But for God, all things are possible. Thanks so much, y'all.